You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Andrew Hammond, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations from authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast.com at spymuseum.org Also, if you like what you hear and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes and whatever platform you might be listening from. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better and you can help. My guest today is Dame Stella Remington who was the first woman Director General of the British Security Service, that is the Domestic Security Service, MI5. Uh, the closest counterpart in our country would, of course, to be those elements of the FBI which cover domestic security. As a Director General, she was recognized both for accomplishment as being both the first woman Director General as well as her performance in that capacity. She has continued to speak out on public issues. Uh, she has continued to pursue a career as a both an author, her novels At Risk and Secret Asset, both being available now in the United States, as well as her uh, autobiography. And it is just delightful to have you here, uh, Stella. Stella has arrived to help us launch the latest museum initiative called Operation Spy, which she has just toured. But let me start our conversation, Stella, if I may, in looking at MI5, the Domestic Security Service in Great Britain, and our FBI. Um, I'm sure you're aware of the conversation here in the United States about creating an MI5 in the United States. There are people who say, no, uh, the FBI is a law enforcement agency. That's the proper place to put it. They will be effective. Others say, no, MI5 has been extraordinarily effective in Great Britain. That's the way we should go. And I'd be very interested, and I'm sure our listeners would, in, in your thoughts on that, on that uh, issue? Well, of course, all countries organise their intelligence differently from each other. And in a sense, I think intelligence services have got to sort of go with the grain of the country that they're working in. In my country, the United Kingdom, we've traditionally had intelligence services that are entirely civilian. 
MI5 and MI6 have got no police powers, they've got no military powers. They are entirely civilian and their job is to gather intelligence, pure and simple, and particularly with MI5, to gather prior intelligence to try and prevent whatever harm is threatening the country, whether it's espionage, as it was mainly in the Cold War, or terrorism as it is now. And the way they do that, as I say, is by intelligence gathering and analysis and assessment. And then, in my country, it's the police who have to take the action on the intelligence. And that's fundamentally different from the arrangement that exists at present in the United States. And I think that it has huge advantages because it means that you can recruit the kind of people into your civilian intelligence services who are actually very good at the job they have to do, but would not be particularly good at the police side of the work. In the United States, although obviously, you know, I'm not here to kind of criticise other countries' arrangements, in the United States, of course, the FBI is sort of doubling up these two forms of activity. My view is that having a civilian uh, security service works extremely well. Of course, it does depend on very close working relationships between the police and the intelligence services, and you've got to make sure that that works well, otherwise the whole arrangement won't work. We have a phenomenon in our country. Uh, we often have short memories, and uh, it takes something like a Pearl Harbor or a 9-11 uh, to sort of waken everybody up again and, and for people to realize, well, that wasn't the first time we had, mm. as you know, uh, there were attacks on uh, two, at least two of our embassies in Africa, yes. uh, the attack on the USS Cole. And uh, now, of course, uh, most recently, uh, you have had the attack in Great Britain on your uh, underground mm -hmm. service. And I think there's a sense, at least I get it when I speak to people here, that perhaps the worst of the threat is over. In other words, we had 9-11, uh, we had the attack uh, both in, in London, Madrid, uh, some other lesser incidents, but now the, uh, the law enforcement and intelligence services are on to them. Uh, in our country, Department of Homeland Security has been formed. Um, so perhaps that, that was the worst of it. But I think those of us who are professional have somewhat of a different view. And I'd be very interested in, in your view of, of the nature of the terrorist threat today. Yeah, well, certainly... Seen from the United Kingdom, I don't think we have a feeling that the worst is over. Uh, in fact, I think we possibly have a feeling that the worst may yet to become, unfortunate, unfortunately. Um, it seems to me, and I'm an outsider now, obviously, looking in, so, so with no special knowledge, but what one, one feels now is that al-Qaeda has survived the war on terrorism, or however you like to describe it, seems able to recruit young fanatics from certainly from the United Kingdom and take them away for training, feed them back in again with the sole objective of carrying out mass casualty attacks. And this is a phenomenon, I'm afraid, that is going on now, currently, and before our very eyes. It's, there have been a number of successes. Obviously, my former colleagues in MI5 have managed to prevent a number of attacks that have been planned, but no intelligence service is ever going to be able to be 100% um, successful. And I think the fear is that in the end, one of these attacks is going to get through, as it did in, on the 7th of July in London when the underground was attacked. So there is a sense, certainly in the United Kingdom, that we are, you know, really 
we're going to see more of this, that it's far from over, and the recruiting and the training is going on all the time. And of course, uh, you lived for so long with the, the threat of the IRA and the terrorism that was mm. carried out in, in the United Kingdom. Do you see, uh, sometimes I think all of us are subject to sort of a single focus. Terrorism commands headlines, uh, terrible things happen, um, but it is the role of intelligence agencies to try and see, if you will, farther over the horizon. Do you see other intelligence threats? Are there other things that, that all of us should be aware of that you feel particularly, uh, as it were, that perhaps attention's not being paid? I think that's very difficult to say. I mean, it is the role of intelligence services to look over the horizon, but it's also their role to deal with the problems that they are facing at the moment. And I think certainly the, the problems of terrorism, particularly in my country, are so great that you know, however much resource you put into it, you are you are pushed to deal with the problems that we actually have now. As far as looking ahead goes, I don't think um, you know there's ever been a huge amount of benefit in trying to foresee the next disaster. I don't think we've ever been particularly successful at that. And although you know there is a role, obviously, for trying to look over the horizon. I can't possibly at the moment say where the next disaster is coming from. I think we're all you know, dealing with the one that we've got at the moment. I mean, you, you mentioned the IRN. We certainly, well, I was working in MI5, we spent a great deal of our time trying to counter their activities, but the threat they presented was a very different one, and arguably, although it was, it was bad, it was easier uh, than the threat that my colleagues nowadays are having to cope with, because the IRA were a group of in the end very well resourced and very well trained terrorists but they were not suicide terrorists they were intent always on getting away with their own lives and so there was a limit to the kind of attacks that they would carry out nowadays with suicide bombers there is no limit to the horror that they're prepared to perpetrate and that's why you know intelligence services and governments are, are looking forward with trepidation to the sort of worst kind of disaster that might happen and there, of course, you're including weapons of mass destruction or anything they might Nuclear, get their hands biological, on. Nuclear, biological, chemical, yes. who knows what they yeah. might get their hands yeah. on and would be prepared to use. Yes. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. You know, it's interesting, during this visit to the United States, uh, you're greeted by the headlines even today of uh, new evidence, if you will, perhaps not new evidence, but a new development in the Livinenko case. Yes. And this takes us right back right to the days back to the of the Cold, Cold War. War with yes, a, it does. Uh, an apparent uh, attempted, a, a completed assassination, if you will, yeah. of, a, of a, a Russian subject in Great Britain. I don't know, is that something, I don't know if you would have dealt with that a great deal, that sort of thing. Well, it certainly you, takes me back to the murder of Georgi Markov, the Bulgarian dissident in London, 
who uh, was stabbed by an umbrella while he was walking across Waterloo Bridge in London. And uh, that, at the time that happened, even though that was the height of the Cold War, we nevertheless regarded it as, as a most remarkable occurrence that somebody should be murdered, you know, right in the heart of a Western capital by a foreign intelligence service. Now, I don't know who has murdered Litvinenko, but certainly somebody has. And the uh, police appear to have traced the poison that was used fairly uh, accurately, as far as one can tell, from Russia uh, to uh, London. So obviously, again, we're looking at the murder of somebody by some aspect of a, of a foreign country. Um, and, uh, you know, it is absolutely startling and amazing. It certainly hit the headlines yeah. in the United Kingdom. Yes, and of course, I, I gather, you and I were chatting earlier, that there apparently is no extradition treaty between Russia and uh, the United Kingdom that, that would uh, no, that's, govern this. No, that's the situation as I understand it, that there isn't an extradition treaty. And anyway, the uh, Russian prosecutors appear already to have said that whatever the evidence, uh, they're not going to uh, allow this, uh, the person who's accused to come to London to be tried. So right now, right now we're at a standoff. Um, you know, this is the sort of thing that uh, sort of provides uh, just uh, for the people who make movies and write books, and I include you in that group, uh, because it's, uh, it's a case that just seems so extraordinary and out of its time and place, and yet here we are dealing with it. Well, it does, and interestingly yeah. enough, I've just finished a book, actually, uh, where the plot is based on uh, an, uh, an attempt to do something unpleasant, I won't go any further than that, to a Russian oligarch. And I had thought of this plot before the Litvinenko case came to um, the public uh, knowledge. So I think it's interesting that my mind was already turning over on this before it actually happened. As the media would say, you've been overtaken by events. Yes, I think um, so. But, but, you know, that's often a question uh, of uh, how real, how close do you think, uh, and how close do you think some of the fictionalized versions, whether in film or or literature come to capturing some of the reality of uh, both your work, counterintelligence, mm. and, and mine. Well, I think some fiction does come quite close to it. Some obviously doesn't. And in many ways, the ones that the public like most of all are probably the most extreme, like the James Bond films. <laughs> but um, there is certainly some fiction, particularly, I would say, John le Carre, the British author who wrote about the Cold War, particularly Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy and Smiley's People are two books that come to mind. And I think that his fiction is very realistic about that period that we've just been talking about, the period of the Cold War. And it reminds me very much of when I first joined MI5, this sort of, it was the heart, height of the Cold War and there was this sense of the wilderness of mirrors that nobody really knew what was going on and whose side anybody was on. You'll remember James Angleton of the CIA. Yes, I do. And my <laughs> yes. former colleague, Peter Wright, yes. of MI5. And together, mm. they had convinced themselves that the Russian KGB had penetrated everything and, you know, nobody was doing what you thought they were doing and everything was not as it seemed. And I think John le Carre gets that atmosphere very well in his books, actually. So mm. I think he is very good. Well, I think he's a, a, a wonderful writer in terms of capturing atmospherics. And uh, I think the one issue I might have with uh, some of his works, there's sort of a pox on both your houses mm. uh, sense there that uh, uh, you both in, engage in these uh, dastardly uh, acts. And, and I must say, having been an American intelligence, CIA actually, um, 
I do think there was a difference in the nature of operational work by the, by the West, and I yeah. will generalize, and that by the East, certainly by the KGB and Bulgarians. I think they were, the East was much more prone to engage in things like extortion and blackmail yeah. and assassinations yes, than the absolutely. West ever was. No, you're quite right. I mean, there were certain methods that the West would never have used, mm -hmm. and uh, which the KGB certainly and their allies from the East European countries did use. So yes, there was a huge difference. And I mean, it was the, it was the moral difference, I suppose, between democracy and communism, really. Uh, I mean, you know, the organizations like the Stasi and the Russian KGB were in the end spying on the people for the benefit of the government, whereas in the West, we were trying to defend the people against external threats. And there's a fundamental difference. Yes, well put, that. well put. Let me ask you a hard question. Who's your favorite spy author? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I've implied that it's John le Carre okay. from what I've said, actually. Um, but, you know, there are a number. I think Graham Greene writes a very telling story and sometimes a very funny one, like Our Man in Havana, yes. if you've read that, which I think <laughs> I have, is yes. extremely yes. amusing. Yeah. I, uh, uh, you know, uh, of course you're here because you have just joined the board of the International Spy Museum. We're absolutely delighted to have you on the board. Um, and you are here, of course, for the launch of Operation Spy, yes. which is this new, and I'll call it intelligence simulation, uh, that we've developed and that we're launching uh, and will be open the first part of June. Um, I know you've toured it and gotten some sense of it. What was your impression of Operation Spy, our new, new activity? I think it was a, a fascinating, um, well, it's difficult to know what to call it, but I suppose one should call it an interactive experience. I mean, it's, obviously it's based on a, on a situation that the person who visits the museum and goes to Operation Spy is going to find themselves in, i.e. being an intelligence officer. And then you have to go through a whole series of, of events and sort of work out, you know, what you're going to, how you're going to respond to these things. But the brilliant thing about it, I think, is the, is the almost the theatrical creation behind it, so that you find yourself in a foreign country, and it does look like a foreign country. And then you walk through a door, and you're in a lift, and you walk through another door, and you're in a surveillance van, and you end up in in somebody's office. So it's a whole series of doors opening, and you're in different worlds. And, you know, I think it's really realistic and people will enjoy it. And there's a sense of, of drama and tension about it as well. You know, there's a lot of, uh, I, I know you were a great proponent of, of what, I, what we call openness uh, during your tenure as uh, Director General. Um, I was part of the group at CIA that w favored openness as well. But there are the critics who say that, well, you know, you can have too much openness. There's too much coming now into the press, into the media that's available. And uh, really, uh, there should, you should be something to stem all this. Now, there is a slight difference in our two societies in that you do have the tradition of the D-notice where the government can step in. But uh, I think it would be interesting for people to hear your comments on something that you were very much for mm. during your tenure, and that's openness. Yes. Well, my attitude to openness was that the public has a right to know what its security service, and this is, that's obviously my, my area, ha has a right to know what, what such people do, and a little bit about what kind of people they are who are doing it. And I suppose my attitude comes out of the Cold War when some people, because we never said anything to the press about ourselves in those days, some people thought we were rather like the East German Stasi, spying on the public. Whereas, as I said earlier, we thought that we were protecting the public. 
And it seemed to me that as the Cold War came to an end, it was important for the public to understand why we needed security services, what it was that they were doing, and how they were doing it. So my colleagues and I formulated a fairly carefully worked out openness strategy to try and do that. What we said to ourselves, though, was that there are strict limits on how open we can be. We can never talk about operations or people or methods in detail, and we must stick to that. And we managed to do that. There were lots of people who said to us, oh, you know, once you kind of lift a corner of the curtain of secrecy, it will all be dragged down and you won't be able to keep any secrets at all. And that's not what happened, actually. We were very strict about what we talk about and what we didn't. We said to the press when we first had contacts with them, we will tell you certain things, we will not tell you other things, but what we will never do is tell you lies. And I think that's very important in any kind of openness that you make very clear what you'll say, what you won't say, but also that you won't mislead people. And that's, that's what we did, and I think it has been very important, particularly nowadays when terrorism is the main threat to the country. It's very important that the public can trust those, those organisations that exist to try and protect them, because otherwise they're not going to give you information, and the public are your eyes and ears out in the country. They're seeing things that you can't see and telling you things. And so... I think it's it's very important and, and a positive thing, provided it's controlled. You know, I'm sure you have the experience, as I do, of having young people approach you uh, who are considering going into intelligence, and I use that in a very broad sense. And, of course, uh, my, my war was very much the Cold War. Uh, you went on somewhat beyond that in, in, in your experience. But I think as, as my last uh, question... Um, we know that a number of, of younger folks and people looking at intelligence as a career have listened to these spy casts. And so I would just ask you, if you were speaking with a young person now, someone who approached you about, you know, I'm studying this or that, and, you know, I happen to speak a language, and, and I'm thinking about intelligence, what would your, your words of counsel be to them? I think a career in intelligence service is an excellent career for somebody who wants to do something to help the country. And I think that's basically how you should look at it. It's not a career in which you're going to make your fortune. It's not a career in which you will become famous because clearly the best things that you do are never going to be known about. So it's a career for somebody who, as I say, wants to have an exciting and interesting life, help the country, but doesn't require the sort of public acclaim that you might get in in other form in other professions, really, but uh, it is a well worthwhile career, and it's one that I've, you know, I've been really happy to have had, and I really feel, you know, that I've served my country in doing it. And of course, in your case, uh, quite extraordinarily, you didn't go into it as as a, as a very junior, younger person. You went into it, I'll say, more or less at midlife. You'd gone mm. overseas with your husband, then a diplomat. Uh, you'd done some clerical work, really, for the. Uh, embassy abroad and then it was uh, you did get involved in it and as they say one thing led to another yes. next thing you knew you were director general well quite well, absolutely yes. um, let me uh, on air now uh, both recognize you and thank you for your public service um, which from all my colleagues have said uh, was was well done and uh, I will just end by noting that our guest today has been Dame Stella Remington uh, who has done both her memoirs, uh, two novels, At Risk and Secret Asset, 
And I should note is also doing uh, both motivational speaking and uh, working to an extent as what we call an executive coach. So uh, obviously you have failed at retirement. Uh, you have now taken on these activities. And I certainly, on behalf of everyone here, wish you the very best. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 non-profit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and would like to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hi everybody, it's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans too. We here at N2K Cyberwire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.